Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. Everyone wants energy to be sustainable, uh, but they also want it at competitive prices. That old saying that you can't have your cake and eat it too? Well, can you solve climate change and keep making money? We'll see. It's Wednesday, February 14th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, climate change and candy hearts for Valentine's Day. The U.S. is the world leader in natural gas exports, but is it a bridge fuel to a clean energy future or a bridge to nowhere? So there's an argument to be made that by, you know, building this export regime and sending all this gas overseas, we are kind of giving a perverse incentive to other countries to build their own gas infrastructure and maybe we'll Mm. stop them from transitioning to renewables. And a lot of Victorian-era Valentine's traditions are familiar, but not all of them. They had chocolates, they had flowers, and of course, they had cards. These cards were absolutely beautiful, lacy, feathery, what so many others didn't know was something else was looming. Beware the vinegar valentine, coming up in about 15 minutes. But first, major airlines have said they're going to be net zero by 2050. That is, they won't contribute to climate change. Today, though, they burn a lot of fossil fuels. There are ways to make jet fuel that doesn't warm the planet. You can make it from things like cooking oil, farm waste, even carbon pulled straight from the air. But these sustainable aviation fuels, or SAF as they're known, are a drop in the bucket today. Airlines are pouring money into changing that, though. And United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby is talking a lot about it. He stopped in today to tell us. We should mention, by the way, that United is an NPR funder. But here's Scott Kirby's conversation with Peter O'Dowd. So how much of this sustainable aviation fuel goes into a United jet on a typical day? Like if I get on a plane this morning, is it likely that my flight will be using it? Well, right now it's pretty small. Uh, It does get blended, uh, particularly in California, into the jet fuel uh, population. Uh, So a little bit, if you're flying out of California, will often be on every airplane, but it's a very small percentage today. And this is an industry that is really in its infancy. Uh, And what we're doing at United is investing in the companies that are doing the R&D and trying to commercialize uh, scaling up to make this a much more sizable industry. And that's this sustainable flight fund. It includes $200 million from companies like yours. And, And as you just said, the money isn't going to buy sustainable jet fuel directly, but it funds the startups working to solve the problem. Why do it that way instead of just buying more sustainable jet fuel? 
Uh, well, the supply doesn't exist yet. And so at this stage of the industry, we have to build the supply. That's why we've focused on investing in the companies that have the ability to scale up and create significant supply. The potential is large, uh, but we have to invest in building the economies of scale and making it commercially viable. Demand for jet fuel is is so high that I understand growing crops just for SAF would have a huge environmental footprint. And then you've got new high-tech solutions like pulling carbon dioxide directly out of the air to make the fuel. Those are mostly unproven and very, very expensive. I mean, do you think that goal is even possible to make enough sustainable fuel to power the industry? I do. Uh, It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, But if you look at the path between here and 2050, uh, we'll believe we'll get to 100%, the ability to get to 100% sustainable aviation fuel using many of the things that you mentioned. uh, And we do think that there's a path to get there. Uh, You're asking your customers to participate here. 115,000 United customers have paid extra money up to $7 on a ticket, uh, which is relatively nothing really on, a say, a $350 flight. Do you think that customers would be willing to pay what it would actually take to decarbonize flying? Well, I think this is a broader question for are people in society willing to pay pay higher amounts for energy that is... Uh, sustainable? And the short answer is no. Uh, And what that means is we have to make it commercially viable. Um, Everyone wants energy to be sustainable, uh, but they also want it at competitive prices. And so that means it is on all of us in industry to find ways uh, to make it price competitive. That's what we're trying to do with this this flight fund. Uh, But I think it is naive to assume that consumers are just going to pay extra. There are a handful that will, but most um, most want the, the products to be price competitive, and we need to deliver price competitive products. Well, in sustainable aviation fuel is not competitive now. I see that it's four times as expensive as conventional fuel, and fuel is always one of your biggest expenses. Is this going to make it more expensive to fly? No, it's not competitive today. But it will be in the future. And to me, this is much like what happened with wind and solar. Investment will drive economies of scale and efficiencies to get the cost to be competitive. That's the whole point of what we're trying to do. I know there will be people listening who are skeptical. Anytime a CEO from a big company, a company that burns a lot of fossil fuel, you know, comes on and says that they want to clean up, they want to do a good job uh, for the environment. And then when you look closer, you know, maybe it's not exactly what it sounds like. Um, how real is this? How, what would you say to skeptics who say, I don't know, this United's not doing this if, from the goodness of their own heart? Well, actions speak louder than words. First, I'd say personally, uh, I've been a, I call myself a climate change geek uh, going all the way back to college. So I've been interested in this for a long time. But secondly, I'd say it's in our interest to do it. If you still want to be skeptical and don't believe us, it's in our best interest to do it. It's not only what our customers are asking us to do. It's not only what the regulatory political environment is asking us to do. But ultimately, it is a way to control our highest and most volatile expense, which is fuel. You know, Vladimir Putin decides to invade Russia and our fuel cost spikes by billions of dollars. You know, one, I think you can believe us because we're sincere and our actions do speak louder than words. Uh, But secondly, it's in our best business interest uh, to do this as well. 
But, you know, uh, mile for mile flying uh, is right now the worst way to travel when it comes to climate impacts. And if we're if we're talking about action, wouldn't the best action be uh, for people who want to reduce their carbon footprint is just to fly less? Uh, absolutely not. First, I'm not sure your stat is correct. But uh, secondly, uh, I think one of the biggest un talked about casualties of COVID is the loss of global connectivity. Uh, United Airlines pre-pandemic carried 1,000 U.S. citizens a day to China, 1,000 Chinese citizens to the U.S. We carried 100 U.S. citizens to Russia, 100 Russian citizens to the U.S. Uh, and that loss of perspective and understanding has made the world a more dangerous place. We are a global community and the only way to be an effective global community is to be with each other, to understand each other. We should not make the mistake of retreat. I'm thinking uh, about longer term into the future because uh, burning sustainable jet fuel still does send carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It's not a complete answer to aviation's pollution problem in that way. How long will it be until we see an electric passenger jet or maybe a reliable hydrogen fuel cell for airplanes? Well, first, I, I, I disagree. Um, Getting to 100% sustainable aviation fuel will be a true uh, net zero without using, you know, the kinds of carbon offsets that others use, like planting trees. It will be a true um, cycle that is net zero, point one. On your other question, I think electric and hydrogen may have a small role to play, but they're going to be small roles. The energy density, one of the things that makes aviation hard to decarbonize, and the reason we need SAF is... There's not even a theoretical physics that allows batteries to have enough energy density to fly um, even medium-sized airplanes, medium distances. Hmm. Uh, one more thing I want to ask you about before we go. Yesterday, uh, flight attendants at United and other big airlines picketed at dozens of major airports. Uh, they're negotiating or getting ready to negotiate a new contract, and they want a bigger share of some of the profits uh, that airlines like United have made in recent years. Uh, what can you say about that? Can you meet their demands? Uh, we are in negotiations with them. They've uh, filed for it. What works in aviation is federal mediation. So uh, we are working through the mediation process. Uh, we look forward to getting a deal done uh, for an industry-leading deal with our flight attendants. They deserve it, and we look forward to getting that done with them. All right, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. We're going to be looking more into this soon, so stay tuned. But we've got another climate story for you now. After the break, the Biden administration's pause on new natural gas export terminals has inflamed a long-running debate about the environmental impact of natural gas and whether continuing to expand the industry is in the public interest. Scott Tong has more when we return. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The White House has put on hold investments to export more natural gas to the world. It cites the greenhouse gas impact. And climate activists are cheering. But 23 red states are threatening legal action, saying it hurts jobs and national security. We're going to talk now about natural gas and the environment. Does limiting exports nudge the world toward a greener future or perhaps a browner one? Jake Biddle is writing about this. He's staff writer at Grist, our editorial partner. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. So climate activists are celebrating this pause in funding for natural gas export infrastructure. Before we get to those export questions, just to set the table, you know, in the popular debate, there is this assumption that natural gas is dirtier than, say, solar and wind and nuclear energy, but cleaner than coal as far as making electricity. In general, do the experts agree? Yes. I mean, natural gas is a fossil fuel, and so it's definitely worse for the climate than renewable energy, such as nuclear or solar or wind. But it is a little bit better in terms of the amount of carbon that it emits than coal or oil. Another item we frequently hear in the discourse is that natural gas is a bridge fuel. That is, as the argument goes, you know, energy transitions generally take a long time. And to get from the dirtiest to the cleanest sources of energy, we might need a a kind of good white meat, you know, to bridge us to a greener tomorrow. I mean, is it clear so far that using natural gas has helped the U.S. cut its overall carbon emissions? Yes. I mean, I think that it's it's a matter of some debate, but there's no doubt that the fact that power sector emissions in the United States have gone down is because we've done so much switching from coal power to gas power over the past few decades. Now, you could say it would have gone down more if we had switched from solar to wind, of course, but that Mm. is definitely the reason why U.S. emissions have plateaued since about 2005. So, Jake, let's talk about this limit on more exports. And you write that the details really matter here. The U.S., already sends a lot of liquefied natural gas around the world. But if, say, Germany can't get what it needs from the U.S., what would it do? Maybe go back to coal to make electricity? Well, that is the big question, right? So if the U.S. hadn't been exporting gas to Europe in the first few years of the Ukraine war, there's no doubt that Germany and other countries in Europe would have had to turn on all their coal plants and you know burn a lot of dirty fuel in order to keep the lights on. But in the years since the war began, those countries and the political leadership of the EU have made a massive amount of investment in you know, solar, wind, heat pumps, electrification. And so in the short term, they definitely need gas in order to avoid going back to burning coal. But in the long term, you know, they don't want to be dependent on the U.S. for energy any more than they were dependent on Russia. So they're kind mm-hmm. of moving away from fossil fuels altogether now. Then, of course, there are the questions of the domestic implications. If more of that natural gas stays here domestically... Does that likely mean, you know, more supply inside the country pushing down the price of natural gas for, you know, say, heating homes in in certain parts of the country? So over the past few years, in the beginning of the Ukraine war, natural gas prices in the U.S. were really high because gas exporters were shipping all the gas they could over to Europe where it was fetching very high prices, and we were feeling the brunt of that. So it's not clear that prices would go down if we stopped exporting any more, but it would make the United States a lot more volatile in terms of domestic energy markets if we were to keep sending more and more of our domestic production overseas. Mm. What about 
industries that buy natural gas as a raw material to make plastic bottles, petrochemicals, tires, all of those things. Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating areas of this debate, and it's an area where the beneficiaries of the export regime are the actual oil and gas producers and the companies that own the export terminals, but their biggest customers domestically, like the fertilizer companies, are actually having a bad time because suddenly the cost of natural gas keeps going up and down and it can go up way more. So yeah, there's a kind of weird, um, strange bedfellows thing going on where you know climate activists don't want us to be shipping gas overseas and hooking the world on gas so to speak. And the the fertilizer companies don't want all the gas to be, because they would like to use it. Yeah, yeah. And and, and finally, just this argument of hooking people on gas. I've heard this argument made by climate activists on, say, say, pipelines, that if you build it, they will come. It will lock in the production or the transporting or the export of a fossil fuel for 30, 40, 50 years if you build that infrastructure. Is that necessarily true? This is another big question, and it's a reason why it, it, you can't quite just say, well, the export pause is you know, bad because China will go back to coal. It's like if we sell this gas to countries in Southeast Asia, they're going to build billions of dollars worth of infrastructure to import and use it and burn it. And that infrastructure takes a long time to pay itself off. right? So there's an argument to be made that by you know, building this export regime and sending all this gas overseas, we are kind of giving a perverse incentive to other countries to build their own gas infrastructure and maybe we'll mm. stop them from transitioning to renewables as fast as they might have done if we didn't send them gas. So it's just very, very complicated and it depends a lot on the political decisions of other countries, which we can't really predict. We've been talking to Jake Biddle, staff writer for Grist, our editorial partner. Jake, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. By the way, if you want some stories of potential climate solutions, head to hereandnow.org and check out our series Reverse Course and watch that space. Coming up, a book publisher on why the romance novel business has gotten so hot and heavy in recent years and where it might be headed. Peter pulls back the curtain after the break. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. 
You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. If ever there was a day for a sexy romance novel, this is it. The truth is, we're living in a romance renaissance. Love stories dominate bookshelves in the hearts of eager readers. Let's take a peek under the sheets to find out what trends are driving the genre. Cindy Huang is vice president and editorial director at Berkeley, an imprint of Penguin Random House known for its romance. Cindy, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you uh, because it has been a remarkable few years for this genre. I mean, we've seen it anecdotally just by the number of stories in the press. But according to Publishers Weekly, there was a 52% increase in the sales of romance novels in 2022. And I'm curious why you think romance is speaking to so many readers right now. It doesn't really surprise me that there's been so much interest uh, among general readers in romance because I think everyone's looking for a little bit of good news. Books have often offered escapism, and I think romance is the purest form of escapism because you're guaranteed a happy ending. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about what's hot, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, Romanticy, I guess, is one of the biggest trends in the genre right now. Um, And as the name implies, these are books that blend romance and fantasy together. What's prompted that? I think with romanticy, you have that completely otherworld setting. It is, you know, the characters can reflect uh, contemporary um, attitudes um, and uh, issues, but it's taking place in a completely different world. So um, you can you can really sort of enjoy it, even if there are problems (laughs) in that world. You know, a lot of these uh, readers grew up on Lord of the Rings. So uh, this is just a way, I think, for them to have those kind of experiences. But in book form, usually uh, it's a female protagonist. um, And I think that's very important to these readers as well, that it's a woman's story that they're reading. We've noticed, uh, of course, that romance novels have become increasingly diverse over the past few years. There's uh, more love stories that will feature characters from different backgrounds written by uh, authors of color. One of note uh, is Pride and Protest, which retells Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice with a black Elizabeth Bennet and a Filipino Darcy. Uh, That's very interesting. What are readers signaling to you about the diversity that they want to see in their romance novels? They want to see books that reflect their own personal experience. Uh, They want to see books that reflect the world they live in. And I think people are looking for something that in all the escapist fantasy, they want to be grounded in a sense Mm. of this is a world I still recognize. And I I want to see people like me find their happy ending. So it's not just limited to an exclusive view. We have a producer on staff, Kalyani, who is a huge romance fan. Uh, she has noticed, uh, she's the one who's doing all the research here, she's the, noticed that the number of spy romances 
is increasing. Uh, just last year, there was The Blonde Identity uh, by Ali Carter, of course, a play on the Bourne Identity, um, To Have Into Heist by Sarah Desai. Uh, and this year, there is The Spy and I by Tiana Smith, which uh, follows a cybersecurity analyst who gets tangled up with a spy after a case of mistaken identity. And we've got a short clip from that book. If you gave me four minutes, I could give you the world. Okay, so maybe it's more like I could hack into any secure network and give you all the private data stored there. But when that data included someone's credit cards, social security number, or complete medical history, it may as well have been the world. Hmm. <laughs> What's the appeal with the spy romance? Well, I think it definitely appeals to readers who are looking for a little bit of adventure to go along with their romance. And it, it is a way of sort of, of, I think, finding order in chaos, too. Um, usually, you know, the characters are on the side of right, even if they seem to be doing shady things. And I think it's just plain fun. Hmm. And before we let you go, uh, why don't you leave us with a, a title or two of a romance novel that's coming out this year that you're really excited about? Well, one title that I'm really excited about is actually by an author that uh, you mentioned, Nikki Payne, who wrote um, Pride and Protest, has a second novel coming out, and it is titled Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. And this is her homage, yes, to Sense and Sensibility, featuring two black sisters who inherit a rundown property in Maine, and they run into all sorts of locals, (laughs) and uh, obviously romance, but from very unexpected sources. So it actually features uh, a lot of diverse characters. The hero is indigenous, so um, she has such a fresh contemporary take on Austin, yet anyone who loves Sense and Sensibility uh, would absolutely recognize all the, uh, the nods to it in the book. Yeah. Cindy Huang is vice president and editorial director at Berkeley. It's an imprint of Penguin Random House that publishes romance. Thank you so much. Thank you. One more thing before we go today. Maybe you got some lovey-dovey cards for this Hallmark holiday. But if it's all too sappy for you, maybe you want to bring back a Victorian-era tradition when Valentine's were more about being sour and salty. Historian Susan Benjamin takes it from here. In the 1800s, around 1850s, let's say, New Englanders were giving gifts. They had chocolates, they had flowers, and of course, they had cards. These cards were absolutely beautiful, lacy, feathery. What so many others didn't know was something else was looming. And that was called the comic valentine, or even more to our liking, the vinegar valentine. It was mean. It was snarky. It was startling. It almost made you cringe. No, I take that back. It did make you cringe. I am not attracted by your glitter, for well I know how very bitter my life would be if I should take you for my spouse, Rattlesnake. Oh no, I'd not accept the ring, or evermore t'would prove a sting. Vinegar cards weren't just between people in love, or not, as the case may be. It was about people who wanted to get their revenge. 
and they gave them anonymously. These were sent to lawyers and shopkeepers and doctors who gave you the wrong kind of syrup that made you sick. Here's an example of one that was published in the Fall River Daily Evening News. Your pads and pills may cure our ills, but your homely face gives us the chills. Before you think that these Valentines were some kind of an anomaly, like who would write those? Who would send those? No. According to the Boston Globe, and this is in 1886, one factory alone pumped out 15 million comic Valentines in a measly 5 million sentimental ones. By far, though, the most influential maker of the Vinegar Valentines was a guy named C. Howard. He was from Boston, and he was called the Valentine Man. The most prominent victims of C. Howard's and all those other Valentine's producers were women, and the insults are pretty standard. I mean, there was plenty about the reasons why one person was an old maid and that her nose was too big and nobody ever wanted to talk to her, the usual stuff. But some of it was really kind of startling. Listen to this one. It's horrible. You claim you're good at anything, so come on, show me some proof. Let me see how good you are at jumping off the roof. All the way throughout the history of Vinegar Valentines, people took real moral offense. And they said, joking on Valentine's Day may seem funny, but no, it isn't. Love is actually very serious. Throughout the entire lifespan of Vinegar Valentines, newspapers kept reporting, even into the 1950s, that they were no more. And all through this time, they never went away. Today, we kind of still have them in this great big envelope that we call social media. Anyway, happy Valentine's Day, no matter how you get your message. And may all your messages be sweet. That sweet piece with historian Susan Benjamin was produced by WBUR's Andrea Shea. That's it for us today. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Julia Corcoran, Chico Theori, Kalyani Saxena, and me, Chris Bentley. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Mikaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Michaela Varela. Mike also wrote our theme music along with Max Liebman and me. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carly Watson. Thanks for listening, and happy Valentine's Day. So glad you choo choo choose to listen to here and now anytime. The sweet talk continues with new episodes every weekday of the year. So remember, roses are red, violets are blue. You're subscribed to this show, so make sure your Valentine is too. And we'll be back with you tomorrow. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail. 
and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. NPR. 